Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. I am your host, Dr. Joe Stoltz, and this episode, we are going to have the second half of our interview between uh, Mount Vernon's president and CEO, Doug Bradburn, and Gordon Wood, Emeritus Professor of History at Brown University. Uh, In this half of the interview, they are mostly going to be talking about Dr. Wood's new book, Friends Divided, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. As a quick reminder, uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook at The Washington Library and on Twitter and Instagram at GW Books. Uh, There is also still time for any teachers you know to apply for our Education Department's Summer Residential Program. Uh, They get to spend a whole week with us here at Mount Vernon, and it's a great professional development opportunity, and we always have a lot of fun. Uh, More information about that can be found on our website at mountvernon.org slash podcast. Uh, And without further ado, uh, now we join Drs. Wood and Bradburn in the second half of their interview. So let's talk then about your latest book, which is the Jefferson and Adams book. Uh, no doubt that's what you've been mostly talking about when you're making right. the rounds here. So if you don't you know, want to spend too much time... No, no, I am can, happy to. It's we a, can go back to... Uh, uh, okay, day. so why did you decide you wanted to do Jefferson Well, I, I had just finished uh, editing three volumes of the uh, Adams writings mm-hmm. for the Library of America. Right, yeah. And I thought I would write about Adams because he fascinates me. Mm-hmm. And my, is that because he's a New Englander or, or no, because he's just a crotchety a, just, guy? Yeah, a crotchety what? guy, and yeah. he, he takes on all the American myths. But at any rate, um, uh, my publisher uh, at Penguin said, why don't you do a comparison? And suddenly that struck me as what I ought to do. And yeah. I'm glad I did because I think comparing the two men illuminates both of them better than if you de- just focused on one. Well, they have such a great end together. Obviously, they well, die that, the of course, day. But, they, but I mean, the friendship at the end, or the correspondence, at least, at right, the end. Right, right. No, that's interesting, but I, I, what really fascinates me is how different they are yeah. from one another. Mm. Uh, all the way from the physical, to the temperament, to mm. their assumptions about human nature, to their views of society, to their views of government, yeah. to their views of religion. I can't think of anything... Mm. Uh, that they don't differ on. The only thing that really they had in common, well, aside from their uh, acceptance of the revolution and their their belief in the greatness of the United States, is their hatred of Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) They both hated him. Is that what drove them back together? Well, it uh, it certainly gave them something in common that they could... uh, uh, For for that reason, Adams is never a a Hamiltonian federalist. He's a halfway federalist. He's halfway between the Republicans and the and the hardcore Federalists, yeah, and so he, that he that, never trusted the financial system. Right, and he he and his son um, really become uh, the accepting of the Republicans. In fact, John Quincy, of course, becomes a Republican, right? Knowing he knowing the, the future, and and he was burned by the Federalists because they they took him out of the Senate. After yeah. his, of course, he's supporting the embargo. He's supporting the Louisiana Purchase. He's supporting these Republican things, and yeah. they're not going to, you know, the Federalists uh, of Massachusetts just vote him out. Yeah, well, at a certain point, if it quacks and walks like a duck, it's a duck. And, I guess. Yeah, and then he's so he became a Republican, <laughs> and then of course they they yeah. make him uh, minister, and then finally Monroe makes him Secretary of State, and he becomes. Uh, probably
probably our best Secretary of State. It seems like Jefferson uh, was flirting with working uh, more working more amiably with Adams uh, at the beginning of Adams' presidency, but Madison kind of talks him out of it. Well, he naively yeah. thought that maybe with, because people were so excited, it was just, oh my God, with the, the two parties, one the Federalist and one the vice, vice president of Republican, this will bring just our dream today, you know, bipartisanship. Yeah, bipartisanship, and so, yeah. And, and <laughs> he, he writes a letter uh, proposing that somehow he collaborate with mm. with uh, Adams, and he says, "Well, before I send this, I should check with my my friend Madison." And Madison says, "Don't send it." Yeah, uh, he felt that this was naive, and it was mm. because the parties were too different. I mean, they mm. they they were forces be, that went beyond the personalities that he wasn't taking into account of, and he said, "This letter will prove embarrassing to you mm. as the." forces uh, develop, you'll find. And so uh, Jefferson agrees and, and doesn't send the letter. So it seems like, uh, correct me here, I'll make some statements. So Adams, it seems, is a, uh, at the Continental Congress is sort of, you know, where, where he's developing his rapport with Jefferson, I guess, the first time. He seems to be um, more politically astute than the Adams that we see later in the presidency, well, more willing to work with people. Or, well, yeah, he's uh, he's uh, on you know twenty committees, yeah. which is one of the reasons he he let Jefferson write the mm. draft of the Declaration because he's on twenty committees and he's chairing many of them, mm. including the War Committee. I mean, he's very busy and he's devoted to independence. Mm. I mean, he's just trying to, in that sense, he does step on toes. Yeah. Uh, you know, with Dickinson and others, he gets into. But because he he's on the right arguments. side yeah. of the of the thing, and he's in the leadership, I yeah. mean, he's he realizes. However, I can't push too far because I'll I'll offend. So he restrains himself a little bit, and he pushes you know Washington as the mm-hmm. as the mm-hmm. uh, commander in chief because he knows that he's offensive to a lot of people. Yeah. And the Massachusetts delegation is he doesn't want it to be too far out in front. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, he has I mean, enough from his point of view, I mean, and, and I think without the power of hindsight, the idea that New England might be left alone is a very powerful. Yeah, no, he reality. definitely, and he uses the you know the notion of a, of a convoy. He says you know, a convoy has to. He says we're like a convoy, and you have to go. The convoy has to go with the slowest ship, and uh, you yeah. can't go faster than the slowest ship. And he, he uses that metaphor, and I think that... It's a beautiful metaphor. Right, it yeah. is. It shows exactly how much... He did have some political it's sense. Savvy. But later, he loses that because he somehow gets so wrapped up in his own um, sense of what's needed. Mm-hmm. And he's so scared of what the society is becoming mm-hmm. that I think yeah. he... I mean, he really thought we were going down the hell in the handbasket, the corruption, yeah. factualism. We're going to have to go to where hereditary Senate and president. God forbid if he were here today, you know, he'd, he would say we're ready for that now. Yeah. A hereditary Senate and president is the only thing that will save us from our from our electoral system. You, you know, one of the things that was so, uh, I think, impactful from the um, from the creation book, your first book, was the, the, uh, the section on Adams in which he's... Uh, you know, right. John, the irrelevant John Adams. Well, I got, he, he basically got, missed it the, got misinterpreted. Yeah. Uh, the irrelevance, I also call it the relevance and the irrelevance. Right. Irrelevance. Right. The relevance right. was his diagnos- diagnosis of, of American society. Yeah. Uh, completely caught up in competition and, and mm. one-upmanship and so on. He really captured America better than anyone until Tocqueville. Mm. But the irrelevance came from his notion 
that that the society was divided into a state. Yes, right. He missed that, that shift and of he mind. He didn't understand that, that yeah. the senates were becoming double representations of the people. In fact, mm-hmm. all of the agents uh, of uh, government had become representative. He missed that point, yeah. and and uh, of course it's un- easy easy to miss because we call uh, houses of representatives. What is the, what is the Senate? Yeah. Originally, it was not a representative body. It was supposed to be just an embodiment. They had no constituents. They right. were just to be the wise men. But people soon realized that that was impossible. In fact, the Pennsylvanians uh, opposed to the the unicameral legislature in Pennsylvania argued for an upper house and, and the uh, opponents said, no, no, you're trying to force the House of Lords on us. And he said, no, 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 we just want a double representation of the people. Well, that's such amazing. If the people can be represented twice, well, then why not three times, four <laughs> times? And that's yeah. sure enough is what happened. Mm-hmm. And Hamilton uses this in 78, Federalist 78. He says, you know, he's trying to justify judicial review. So he begins to argue, well, the judges, you know, they're just as much an agent of the people as these state legislators. Well, that's his argument, but he didn't foresee the consequences. If people begin to think of judges as agents of the people, then we better better elect them. Mm. And sure enough, now, by the Jacksonian period, they begin electing judges, and we now have 39 states that elect their judges. Now, we can't do that to the federal, because it's too difficult to change the Constitution. But if we could, people Mm. would start saying, let's elect the judges. I mean, What's fascinating to me is the way ideas change in these kinds of debates over the head, so to speak, of the participants. They scarcely know what they're doing. Well, that's, I think, what was so compelling about that that, uh, take on Adams, precisely because he's kind of out of the country. And he comes back, and he sort of missed the moment, you know. That's right. And he's still in that model of okay, you got to each branch relates to each social station in life. Right, social, right. we got to recreate the social order, and that's what balance means instead of the the balance of the jurisdiction. Exactly. And balance. so all of his colleagues yeah. who write to him saying, "I don't understand what you're talking about," yeah. he he just gets <laughs> frustrated. Yeah. And, and that's did, what and I meant by the irrelevance. But it was too explanation. It was too strong a term. Yeah. It was too, because call, uh, historians picked it up and. They, yeah. they couldn't figure out what I was oh, saying. Oh, I don't agree with that. I think well, people figured it out. I think people have, have, have disagreed with it. But I think uh, I think it makes the book, it really helps understand that shift well, that, you, yeah. that you're trying to describe about basically a right. science Right, why Taylor is arguing with him, yeah. uh, John Taylor. Yeah. And Taylor is into the new thinking. Yeah. And uh, they just know, they don't meet. Yeah. But that went on for uh, quite a few mm. years. And, and what's interesting is that Taylor, at the end of his life, he's dying. And he realized his book was too late. He should have published it 20 years earlier. He took so long to write it. And, and But he writes to Adams and thanks him for being such a well, I don't, being a contestant, being taking his book seriously, mm. no one else did. His <laughs> style was yeah. so difficult yeah. that nobody was reading his book. But but Adams did yeah. and responded, and they exchanged about thirty letters. I mean, it, it, mm. so it, it's a poignant moment when he he writes him and commends him. For, for the debate that they've yeah. gone on with. Adams loved that. Yeah, he, loved course, the debate. he loved the debate. Did anybody read Defense of the Constitutions? So That's the question. Maybe in France, right? I mean, there was something... Well, some people read it. Yeah, the French read yeah. it because they picked it up right away and said, this is where he's wrong. Tergo and... And they had a, yeah, they had a good point that yeah. he's, he's, he's supporting... A, it's a British a, model. A, right, exactly. A British model of estates. Mm. And uh, they had a good point. 
Yeah. Turgo had a good point. So, uh, so okay, so Jefferson and Adams, and so where does Jefferson fit into this arc? It's, I mean, it's got to be, what, it's a chronological challenge, I'd imagine, writing it. Well, because uh, no, the, uh, maybe not. I no, guess they're no, no. They the Jefferson time. actually the, the, they died at the same time. That's they easy. died at the same time. But <laughs> Jefferson was uh, eight years younger, and he deferred to Adams. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons they got along, especially in the in the in the constitutional, I mean, in Continental the Congress. Uh, Continental Congress, was that uh, Jefferson came in late. And there's the older man. Mm. He didn't was only eight years, but that can mean something. And mm. Jefferson actually deferred to him, and and and, he, and, and Adam saw him as his protege, mm. and so that really made him open to a friendship. Interesting. And then, of course, the real friendship is is bonded in in, in Europe okay. when they the two families just intermingle. And Jefferson, you know, takes John Quincy to a museum, go to the symphony together, and they, they, the two families just and Abigail and and and, and Jefferson really they, they carry on a little flirtatious yeah. uh, uh, correspondence. He's buying pre- when she and John go off to London as minister. Uh, he buys presents for and sends them to London. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a real yeah. friendship there. Well, it's interesting you mentioned how different they were, but I guess one one way. That even Americans who are very different can feel the same as when they're in Europe, right? And right. Are, well, they're both Americans. They're two right, Americans right, right. abroad, and so they right, have that right. bond. But they as well. couldn't differ more. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> Jefferson believed that all men are created equal, and he believed that literally, yeah. except all all white men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most Americans accepted that, and I think they still do. That is, the different obvious differences that emerge as adults are due to different environments, different training. Yeah. That's why education is so important to Jefferson and to the rest of us. Mm. Adams denies this. Yeah. He's really taking it. He says, no, we're all born unequal. So he's a, and that uh, un- inequality is there for... He didn't know about DNA and genes. He's a nature genes. over nurture guy. Right. Yeah. He's a nature man all the way. And he tells Jefferson... So his natural aristocracy, though, it, was, it wasn't based at all on any kind of social... Oh, yeah, no, context. it's good. Right, right. The, yeah. the wily guys will make yeah. it. The yeah. ones who are shrewd. I mean, he just had no confidence in that the talented and the virtuous are going to emerge. He had an iron-long law of oligarchy, and, you know, this has been touched on. This is nothing new. There's several books out on this point now. Uh, The question is, you know, he does reach a point where he talks about, well, a man who can influence one other vote is an aristocrat. Well, that sort of democratizes aristocracy. (laughs) He's talking about... Gentlemen, yeah. that's one of his distinctions. Is that gentlemen, commoners, yeah. are the, those are the aristocrats, the gentlemen. Interesting. If they're one out of you know ten people, that's one thing. But if they're you know every third person's a gentleman, then then it somehow gets diluted. And, and uh, I think that's what's happening. He sees more and more people claiming the status of gentlemen. Interesting. And so he yeah. that accounts for that strange remark. It comes late. But Adam Adams believes though in those kind of distinctions, oh, gentlemen and others. You know, there's a um, so here's a little anecdote that you probably know because you you know it all. You've read it all. But uh, in one of Rufus King's letters about meeting. Uh, King George the Third. They start talking about Adams's first uh, first uh, message to Congress, and George the Third says to King, "This is through Rufus King's letters, that uh, he likes Mr. Adams's uh, address to Congress much better than he liked Washington's addresses to Congress because Adams 
calls the members gentlemen, and Washington called them my fellow citizens. citizens. And uh, I didn't king, know about that, but that's well, interesting. And the king is the king sounds a lot like Adams because he goes on then to talk about these little differences of distinction will have will matter in political comportment and public opinion, and Mr. Adams will be successful because of these. You know, uh, so it's like George the Third and Adams are cut from well, the same they're, cloth. They're, yeah, yeah, he would be sympathetic. I mean, <laughs> yes. they, they, Adams has this argument yeah. with Rush and with others about name call. You know, yeah. titles and everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and then he says, people are beginning to talk about first names. He says, what do you mean first names? Because they call each other Mr. Jefferson, Mr. Right. Adams. Right. Know. Yeah. And, and he says, what's it going to be? And he says, it's going to be Tommy Jefferson. It's going to be <laughs> Freddie Muhlenberg, who's the Speaker of the House. Yeah. And of course, he would be appalled by today's world where there are no last yeah. names, there are only well, first no, names. Nor formal distinctions. Right. Yeah. And all yeah. the formalities gone. He would say, well, that's exactly what's happened. It's gone to yeah. pot. The whole world has gone to pot. Yeah, just what he expected. Extraordinary. So they do seem to have one thing in common also, that they're both very unorthodox legal minds. I mean, they aren't, uh, I, I don't think, I mean, correct me, I don't think they're sort of, they don't pedantically sort of follow, they're sort of the original thinkers when it comes to the law. Well, Adams is, is in love with the common law, and mm. Jefferson hates it. Mm. So there's a big difference. Yeah. Uh, Jefferson's legal training uh, was boring to him, and he did it because, well, that's what planters do. As soon as his grand, his uh, uh, father-in-law leaves him with many more slaves and many more, mm. much more land, yeah. he stops the legal practice, which never interested him mm. anyhow. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't a source of his income. For Adams, it is the source of his income, and he comes to love the law, and Jefferson comes to hate it, hate hate the common law. Yeah. Uh, and he hates um, the judges. He hates uh, Marshall. Yeah. Uh, he, he can't stand any kind of, I mean, he hates judicial review, the whole notion that the judge should have, he would be a Scalia-type mm. conservative in that sense because he believes the legislature should have the final say. Yeah. In fact, he doesn't believe the court has any monopoly of deciding what's constitutional. Adams is on the other side of that issue. He's very much into the common law and the mystery of the common law. And the role law. of judges. Yeah, and the role of judges. He, he's into the mystery of the common law, which, of course, yeah. is the source of judicial discretion, which uh, is something that the Federalists uh, uh, favor. So they differ on their attitude towards law, and mm. uh, and it's understandable. Although uh, uh, Adams makes fun of of Marshall's biography of of uh, Washington, mm -hmm. which was the first great yeah, yeah. biography. Used, five using volumes. his papers. Yeah, well, five volumes was a little bit much, I guess. But <laughs> it seemed, I don't know if anyone read that. Either. No, no. But uh, uh, so he makes fun of that, you know, mausoleum. But he, of course, is the one who appointed Marshall, and yeah. he has great respect for Marshall. And and Jefferson does not. He's a bitter enemy of Marshall. Well, uh, Jefferson, uh, you know, he starts. Um, uh, putting together his political annas from from all his uh, diary right, entries right, and then right. other issues in part as a response to Marshall's history uh -huh. in Washington uh -huh. yeah. in the 1790s. And, uh, yes, he would occasionally take notes immediately, presumably immediately yeah. after a dinner party or something. And so some of our yeah. important uh, uh, incidents come from, from his uh, yeah. annas. So do you do much in the book with Jefferson and Adams' uh, uh, cor final correspondence? Uh, sort of, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, they, that, that relationship they, it, they develop through it, letters. It's, you know, Jefferson, I mean, Adams writes three times as many letters as... Yeah. as and But Adams, it's interesting because at one point he says, uh, he knows that Jefferson's in a different league, a different celebrity league, mm. 
from, from him. And he says, well, how, how many letters do you get in a year, Mr. Jefferson? And Jefferson says, well, you know, I get last year, 2000, I think it was um, 1820, I got 2,000-something. Mm-hmm. And Adams is appalled. He says, I get 200-something. Yeah. So 10 times. Yeah. And, of course, Jefferson feels an obligation to answer them all. Mm. So it's underst- he says, it's understandable why you only write, you know, one to my three. He says, I, I don't care. I says, I enjoy writing my three. Mm. And, and, of course, that, that's true. He really seems to enjoy the correspondence more. He is, he's facetious, he's joking, he makes fun of yeah. things. You know, at, in 1815, Napoleon's been defeated, the Bourbons are back on the throne in France, mm. and so what does Adams say to Jefferson? What do you think of the French Revolution <laughs> now, Mr. <laughs> Jefferson? And yeah. of course, you know, anyone else would have said, the hell with you, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. He doesn't. He puts up with this razzing. So mm. Jefferson is patient and, and forgiving mm. because he has to put up with a lot of this kind of um, what we call ribbing someone. Mm -hmm. But it's done, he realizes that it's done in a friendly manner. Mm. Uh, But, you know, I'm not every, but he would have been willing to do that. Rush was willing to put up with it too, because Adams would treat Rush the same way. He would make these outrageous statements. And I was leaving Rush flabbergasted, but he knew that there was a warm heart on the other side. And I think that made... Adams Adams continually mesmerizes historians, I think, because he he leaves so much of himself in the letters. I mean, he's so right. much more open right. than so no, many no, more members of that. He's generation. hard on his sleeve. I mean, he's yeah. just an open book. Yeah, and you've and you've got Abigail's letters as well. Right. So you have a kind of a whole relationship in there. And Jefferson's you know. the opposite. Yeah, I mean, so he's I, very standoffish. Right, he's reserved and he's he, intellectual. Right, I mean, he'll go on these sort of long. Right, you know, and he, but he doesn't uh, never lets you uh, yeah. know what he's really thinking, yeah. which is what led to his. Uh, you know, he's he's very polite. He's he's actually obsessed by politeness, which was mm. a very much part of the Enlightenment notions of politeness, civility, yeah. and so on. And he take he writes about this, and he tells his son-in-law and so on to how important politeness is. Mm. But it leads to dissimulation because you don't say things to people. Uh, yeah. that you might say privately about them, and that leads to a sense that you're two-faced. And yeah. that's what's Jefferson's great problem. He always... He he, he really never is open. Well, well here we're here in Mount Vernon, so we, we, let, we, we need to close our conversation talking about George Washington a little bit. And oh, let's, definitely. Let's, uh, let's, let's do it from the vantage of uh, Jefferson and Adams. Now, Adams is one of the few who write openly criticizing... Uh, Washington after his death certainly he criticized ways. him when he was alive he, alive. he, he, took, well. he yeah. took him on during the war yeah. 1777 yeah. in exactly. the Congress I mean it was just he should never have done that because Washington was was too revered I mean mm. he, but he was jealous of Washington he was he seemed to think that as an armchair uh, military man who was going to read books on martial arts now, so his son... But he could, does, re- yeah. ultimately respects him. He yeah. knows that he's yeah. superior to him. He's got that grudging respect. He had the gift of silence. Yeah, he says that in you his know, list of that, ten, that's important. ten things. He, you know, he realizes he, that's the one thing he doesn't have himself, yeah. Yeah. and Washington is... He, he's impressed by Washington, yeah. there's no doubt of it. But he is jealous. Well, and he, well, he also knows he's a human being and not an idol, and I right, imagine right. that that must have gotten pretty And he's old. very upset by the fact that Washington 
decides to tries to to serve without pay. Mm-hmm. He has a long uh, correspondence on this point yeah. with a with an English uh, friend. Really about oh yeah about why people should be paid. Mm-hmm. Now he's talking as a middle class person <clears throat> in origin, and and of course the, the not serving without pay becomes is very English. And of course the yeah. members of Parliament are not paid till 1911, mm-hmm. and and Washington tries to to have that keep that tradition with, as commander-in-chief he accepts no pay and tries to not take the salary as yeah. president but they won't let him do that because they realize that, I think that if he did well and, and all, it was set expenses I guess taken care of but yeah. Uh, yeah, because otherwise he but might But that's, uh, that's a big difference trouble. between them. Yeah. Uh, Washington is still living... I mean, Adams is, for all of his uh, monarchism and so on, he is foreshadowing a middle-class world. When is Adams born? Uh, so Washington 1732. 1755, right. I think. Oh, Adams? Really? No, no, that's his college yeah. graduation. Yeah, yeah, he's born in 35. Okay, so he's only a few years younger right, exactly. than Washington. Right. So he has the... He's more of a contemporary. I mean, Jefferson... Right. Uh, Washington, I mean, Jefferson's 12 years old, and Washington is already a a war hero in Virginia. Right, um, right. So he's always going to have a different perspective. Right, I Jefferson's think, just a kid, as, yeah. Jeff, as Adam says during the crisis through the Stamp Act and so on. Yeah. He, he's barely out of diapers as yeah. far as Adams is concerned. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what about Jefferson and Washington? Uh, well, they were close, uh, obviously, yeah. in the early part, but during the mm-hmm. administration, uh, Jefferson... Washington comes to realize that Jefferson was not honest with him. Yeah. On the uh, that's the worst thing you can do in Washington. Yeah, and uh, he, he Hamilton is of course forthright and honest and upfront. Yeah. And that makes all the difference. Jefferson again tries to he just wriggles around and doesn't doesn't really come on, come straight, and that hurts their relationship. It, so, it essentially kills it. So, uh, so as someone who's uh, you know devoted a lot of their work to broad social trends over long periods of time and transformative cultural changes and ideological changes, what is the role of individuals in uh, in in history? Well, obviously they're important. <coughs> uh, and Washington was probably the most important. It certainly was the most important. Uh, although I do have a, a sense that uh, p- participants in the past are uh, uh, buffeted and, and controlled by forces they scarcely understand. Yeah. We live in a fog in a way, yeah. uh, and and Washington experienced that. I, mm. You know, the fact that he came out of retirement in 1798 yeah. to leave Huge the mistake. army tells yeah. you that he, he, he was just confused by yeah. the world. It was going too fast. And his last, one of his last letters that he writes to Trumbull, they tr- the Federalists want him to come out of retirement that's and run right. for the presidency no, against, the, against the French. And then letter. he says, look, you could put a, 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 broomstick. a broomstick up yeah. and call it uh, Son of Liberty and he'd win. I mean, he foresees yeah. the, the democratic politics where anybody can run for office. Yeah. And, and it's a... Which is sad because all of these founders who live into the 19th century die disillusioned yeah. with what they have wrought. That that is the saddest thing. The only one who died happy was Franklin because he died mm. <laughs> soon enough, mm. 1790. Yeah. So he doesn't experience the disillusionment that comes from, essentially, from democracy. Mm. They all see that this isn't really the world I expected. Mm-hmm. But that's true in any dynamic society. That's true of anyone who gets. <laughs> It's too long. That's right. <laughs> it does seem to be that case. Right. You know, That's why old longer. people say, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket <laughs> because it's different from the world yeah. they grew up in. Yeah. And it seems to happen, so to speak, over your head, mm. under your feet, 
that to me is a historical process. When you go back, you see you, yeah. you, you, the blindness of the actors, the, the yeah. confusion they're in. They, it's amazing. They're, they're struggling, and so you have some sense of sympathy for them because yeah. they, they're struggling with forces they can barely understand. Yeah, I, I think the study of history uh, gives you a little more patience with the That's present. Right. Because and the present is complicated and the past and you need is, is some always compassion for the people yeah. in the past because they yeah. didn't know the future. Mm. And to accuse them for not being like us is really, uh, mm. uh, that's the great sin. Well, and it's sort of, it's, it's, it's sort of spitting into the wind. You know, what's the point yeah, of well, it at yeah, a certain what are, level? What are people going to say about us <laughs> 100 years from now? The well, they'll remember you, you, Gordon Wood, for all of your well, literature. You, they won't they'll, say anything about Doug Brown. They'll so remember, yes, they will. <laughs> the uh, director anyway. of the library yeah, at, right. at Mount Vernon. That library, yeah. yeah. So, well, wonderful. We're, we're, I'm looking forward to tonight, and uh, I've enjoyed this. Oh, I have to talk tonight too. Yeah, you do. You got to. You got to earn your keep. This was just for free. Oh this boy! Here, so uh, we'll wrap it up since it's, uh, we've we gone on. So we've gone on long enough, as, right. they, as they say. As Cromwell said to Parliament, "You've sat here too long." Right. right? So, uh, thank you for your time, and uh, I look forward to uh, to hearing more. Okay. All thank right. you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.